I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it product availability just one part that makes o'reilly stand apart the professional parts people oh 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 o'reilly auto parts welcome to the wired to hunt podcast your guide to the whitetail woods presented by first light creating proven versatile hunting apparel for the stand saddle or blind first light go further stay longer and now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today on the show, I'm joined by Jared Van Hees, host of the Habitat podcast, to discuss small property land improvements, soil-conserving food plot practices, and more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And this week on the show, we are continuing Habitat Month. And joining me today is Jared Van Hees. He's the host of the Habitat podcast. He's the co-owner of Vitalize Seed. He's a land consultant, and he is a real-life practitioner of small property land management strategies. He owns a 15-acre property and a 70-acre property both in Michigan, that he's been building into these little whitetail and wildlife meccas while, you know, also having some really darn good hunting considering the size of that. And, and I mean, 15 acres, 15 acres, that's it. And he's loving it and he's having success and having fun. And, you know, that's about as affordable as a start as you could imagine when it comes to, you know, getting a whitetail property and doing stuff with it. And it's working for him. So that's what I'm really geeked about today is talking through, you know, these land management ideas that are applicable, I'd say, for anyone. You know, you don't need hundreds or thousands of acres. You don't need big tractors. You don't need fancy equipment to do any of the stuff you're going to hear about today. Um, and I find that empowering. Uh, I find that exciting for a lot of us, you know, like me, maybe like you who don't have a bunch of land or fancy equipment. So that said, Jared brings this this really helpful kind of every man's perspective um, and a lot of insight, you know, glean not just from his years of personal experience, but also from the fact that, you know, on his podcast, he's interviewing dozens and dozens of 
the best whitetail habitat gurus around. So with that in mind, today I chat with Jared about the importance of creating dynamite cover on a small property and how he's done that. We talk about building better access routes and so you know how key that is in these kinds of situations. Um, we talk about a, a bunch of different screening ideas, how to create food plot screens, how to screen access routes, all that kind of stuff, how to make deer feel more secure on a small property and keep them there. We discuss soil-friendly food plotting, what the benefits of that are, how to plant no-till without a tractor or drill, uh, and a bunch of stuff like that. So I enjoyed this chat. I really think you will too. Um, if you do, be sure to check out the rest of Jared's work. He's a good guy and a great resource. So without further ado, I say we get into week two of Habitat Month. Let's go. All right. With me on the line now is a fellow Michigander, Mr. Jared Van Hees. Jared, thank you for joining me. Mark, good to talk to you again, sir. I appreciate you having me on. Um, I want to thank you. You know, you've you've built quite the the platform here, and, and I've been a long-time listener. So well done, and uh, thank you. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. It's uh, It's been cool to you know, get to spend a little more time with you here in the more recent past. You, you're someone who I have like known of for a long, long time. I think, you know, either through wired hunt, you'd reached out to me at some point through social media or something. And then I think we started bumping mm-hmm. to each other at, at like QDMA events or, um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember what the first thing was where I bumped into you, but it was either BHA or NDA or QDMA and, you did some stuff with my buddy Furter, I think, at some point with with QDMA, and then we were at the uh, oh the back forty field of fork stuff. Bumped into you there, I think, one of those times, and then and then you were my knight in shining armor last year, helping me out with some food plot challenges I had of my own, and uh, so you, you came in a big way, helped me find someone with some equipment that I you know that would help me get some food plots into a tough spot with weed issues. Um, so it's been nice getting to spend some time, getting to talk more. And I figured, you know, I was thinking about what I wanted to do this month, which is Habitat Month here on the podcast. Um, you were a guy that I knew, like, this, we have to have you on. It's time to talk to Jared. You know, you, you've got a really interesting set of personal experiences. And then you layer on top of that the fact that you run your own podcast, talking to all sorts of different people about habitat improvement. I think that gives you this very interesting um, foundation to talk about these things. Your your personal plus then like what you've consumed from all these people, and and that's why I'm that's why I'm glad to do this. So so pressure's on Jared because I'm I'm thinking this is going <laughs> to be a good chat. Um, so that said, you just told me before we start recording that you broke your collarbone, right? Oh boy! And yes. uh, so broke your collarbone trying to impress your kid uh, skiing or was it skiing or snowboarding? It was skiing. Okay, skiing. And you've got like a two to three month recovery period now during the winter. Uh, right out the gate, I got to know, are your habitat projects screwed? Like is your whole plan for this year like kaput? Did you have these big plans and dreams of what you're going to do in this kind of late winter, early spring time period? And now you're picking up the pieces and, and trying to struggle with what you're going to do? Or are you not worried about it at all and you're, you know, you've got a plan to get past this? Where's your head at? Oh man, no, I'm I'm crying over here. I'm sitting here in <laughs> tears. Um, you know, we we talk about this stuff all year long, and we, we talk about a lot of deer hunting too. But you know, January first, it's time to fire up that saw for me usually, and and get out there. And 
Oh man, I am bummed. Um, yeah, so I was trying to be a hot shot in front of my son. He's four, and I screwed that up. Uh, <laughs> broke the collarbone up north skiing. Um, oh, my wife is not very happy about that, and no. it's just now it's just inconvenience to do about anything. Um, but what's what's cool is I can still go visit some of our client properties and help them out by walking around and, and making our plans. But the, to your point, yes, I had. I had projects down here. I had projects up north. Um, a lot of it with a saw, opening up food plots, uh, edge feathering, the, the whole gambit. And now I'm supposed to do nothing for like three months. Mm. Um, and I'm not a guy who sits around very often, you know, for more than like an hour. So I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm still learning how to cope, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, hopefully hopefully talking about habitat stuff scratches the itch a little bit because you, you still get to sure. do that quite a bit. And today we'll, we'll do some of that too. So I, I, one of the big things, Jared, I like about your story and I like about what you bring to the table is that you have this personal experience working small properties. Like so many of the habitat gurus out there, um, they've got tons of property. They've got big properties. They've got medium properties. They've got bunches of them. Um, and, and there's a lot of insight we can glean from those folks who have worked on, on lots of different places and have a large scale of, of property they can work with. Like, certainly I love talking to those people and I know you talk to people like that too. Um, but a lot of us listening, me included, we don't have that big property. We've got 40 acres or 80 acres or 20 acres. And we're sitting here thinking, man, is any of this relevant to me? You know, can I do anything on my little piece? Um, so that's a question like I'm I'm asking myself that all the time. And you with a 15 acre piece that you're working on and a 70 acre piece, like you're living the realistic dream for most of us. You're living the thing that does seem possible for me, that does seem possible for a lot of folks. So I guess that is all to say out the gate, Jared, you maybe maybe I should just ask you, what was that process like in a cliff notesy kind of version? to finally take the leap to start out with a small property. And now a handful of years into it, um, has it been worthwhile taking, finally taking that leap into buying a piece, starting small has the, the return on your investment from a satisfaction and joy and even hunting perspective been what you thought it would be. Oh my gosh. Overwhelmingly. Yes. Um, you know, like you, I'm super obsessed with, with whitetails and, and bow hunting and, gun hunting, all of the above. Michigan, we have a long-lasting tradition on deer camps and just been enamored by it my entire life. And, you know, that first step in buying a property is definitely scary uh, financially um, for your family. But once you once you make that first step and you realize that, you know, you can make some sacrifices elsewhere to make things affordable, it's, it's totally worth doing. Um, my first property was is 15 acres. I still own it. I've owned it for well, this month. It'll be six years. Um, bought it when I was 29. And, you know, it was <laughs> the first one. You don't really know what you're getting into. You yeah. really don't. But there's only one way to learn. And that, you know, sink or swim type, whatever cliche you want to use. So I jumped in and right off the bat um, started started with what? knowledge I had in my head or what I had read on the internet or watched on YouTube and, and started going after it. Um, I screwed up many times between now and then, 
and and made some backwards moves. But that first 15 acres, I will remember that property for the rest of my life because it was so many firsts for me, so many feelings. Uh, my kids are little, planting apple trees with them. But also, it's like a testing ground for everything that I do, that I talk about, that we recommend, you know, everything I've, I've put in a small scale. I've tried it uh, for the most part. And really, it's it's. The, the juice is worth the squeeze overwhelmingly for that that investment. And and I'm net positive on on equity at yeah. this time with it, too. So, you know, I don't see how you could you could really lose learning the family experiences, the hunting, which has been great. And then uh, an asset that's yeah. that's has equity. So, yeah, I'm in. So do you imagine or was the plan with that small piece was the plan to, to that this is going to be like a forever 15 or was the plan to buy it, build it, flip it for something bigger in the future? What's the game plan now on that front? Yeah. So initially it was just get my own piece of land. I grew up hunting state land in West Michigan, um, Manistee national forest, my entire life shot my first buck out there, everything. So nobody in my family owned property. Um, and it was just tough hunting. I mean, you've been over there yeah. and so I've always wanted something better. And my buddy, he had 80 acres. His uncle had 80 acres growing up and he was shooting eight points and 10 points. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I got to buy a piece. Uh-huh. And so my whole life has just been sitting like that. Um, and my thought is, you know, I talked to, to Dan Perez a long time ago and, and he, you hear his story and he, you know, goes smaller, bigger, 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 bigger. That, and that's what I'm trying to do. But at the same time, if a piece is producing, and it's affordable. I don't see the reason in in selling it. At least that was my thought at at the time. So the fifteen has done has done well for hunting. Um, but now I'm kind of I've kind of come to the part where man, I wish I would have a little more income on it to help justify some things. Um, and I kind of want to get that bigger piece, that next step. Finally, it took me a while to get to that step. My goal was every five years address the situation and make a decision. So I'm on year six. I didn't hit my goal on, on making a decision, or maybe I did internally because it hasn't sold. I haven't sold it. So um, kind of all up in the air there, but I would love something bigger. There's no question about that. Interesting. But the 15 was still, it seemed, I mean, you just said, definitely worth it as a starting point. And it's like you said, it's producing. So you're, you are having success and you're having fun on a 15 acre property. It's possible to do it on 15 acres. Is that, is it a unequivocal yes to that? Yep. 110%. So I want to get to how you got there, but at first you said something that I have to dig into more first, which is you made a lot of mistakes. What were these mistakes that you made along the way over these six years with this first property, your first 15, what are the things you did that took steps backward? Well, the first mistake I did was I went out there and first day we were there, I rented a uh, skid steer from a friend of mine and we bulldozed or, or, or bush hogged, I should say a lot of cover, a lot of, um, area to make food plots, you know, food plots, food, food plot, food plot are the big things that everybody talks about and they're important. But in Michigan, you cover to me is King and, I've spent, you know, I spent the next three years building that cover back to try to 
reverse what I had done. And the reason that that's important is because our deer, as you know, are wired a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was one big mistake. What percentage of that 15 would you say, um, did what, I guess, what was the breakdown of the 15 acres when you started? And then after you went and knocked down all that cover, as far as like, what was cover? What was open space now? Or sorry, before you crushed everything or brushed everything, brush hogged everything. And then afterwards. Great question. So to give you a little bit of a layout, it's kind of split in two pieces. It's, it's a big L shape. The back part of the parcel is lower wetland, um, a lot of burr oak back there. And then it after, and then after me, behind me, it's a big swamp. Very uh, helpful to have one of those nearby. Yeah. So the, so the first, or I guess the back half of the, of the property is wet, lowland, kind of mature canopy forest with trees that like, you know, wet feet or roots in, in the water, which are the burr oak I have. Then up from there, there's about five acres of some higher ground with a, a dish running through the middle. And that's where I did a lot of brush hogging. I bet I brush hog probably two and a half to three acres worth of area right off the bat. You know, the wide expanse of food plot. I was satisfied. We were all high fiving. <laughs> you know, it looked great. And um and I still I still killed a nice buck that year, but I I realized that uh in Michigan or certain states like Michigan, we have to address this a little bit differently. So now, fast forward to 2022, fall of 2022, I bet I'm down to an acre total, acre and a half total. So cut in half about, really. Of, of opening. Of opening. That's, yep, that's for food. Yep, exactly. Everything else I've let grown in or grow in, uh, thicken up um, between, you know, my access location and the food plot is all now cover. Interesting. So can you walk me through since that initial opening up of stuff, what are some of those other best projects that you've done? What have been the most positively impactful things? Sure. Sure. Um, access, proper access is always number one. You, you've talked about that a hundred times. So have we, I, I just, I can't push that enough. I don't step off of my access trail with my boots, uh, two yards to go into the property unless I'm, you know, tracking a deer or whatever. I, I hold very true to that access. Um, I planted some, some mass trees, some chestnuts and some apples, but those just started producing last year. So I really don't have a good beat on, on what that's done. If anything for me yet, um, screening kind of goes with the access, but screening your plots. So they're, so they're not as big and wide open or having cover around your plots. So they're not, the deer can't walk out, which happened to me two years ago. We walked out, nice buck looks across, didn't see any deer turn around and walk back in the woods. Yeah. Um, I killed him about an hour later, but <laughs> it was, but he did what, and, and, and it was my smaller food plot, but he still did that check that they do on large fields. They stand in the brush, you look out there in these large plots, they don't see anything, they don't smell anything, and they they bugger out before you even know they're there most of the time. Um, so cover around the food plots or screening. I always have a screen, whether it's switchgrass or um, an annual screen, you know, sorghum, Egyptian wheat, that sort of thing. And then high quality food. Food, food is very, very important. I feel like 
it's one of the most important things, but it has to be surrounded by the right type of cover, in my opinion, in Michigan to get a nice buck to use it in legal hours, right? So I've always had food plots since day one. They've always done pretty well. Um, I, I take like a no-till approach or I leave clover just in case something goes goes drought. I have a clover backup established. So between those three, I would say the access the seclusion of the plots with screening products, you know, giving the deer their their low pressure and then some high quality food, um, does pretty much what I've done since then. Okay, so let's dig into the access side a little bit because, sure. like you talked about, you know, especially in a heavily pressured state like Michigan, and even more on a small property in a state like Michigan, the pressure is king. Like that's the thing that's going to influence deer movement almost more than anything um you can really really easily booger that area up i would imagine so how did you go about creating or designing an access plan or actual paths you know around this place so that you could hunt it sometimes but not educate everything like like was it i guess i'm curious to hear like what how did access work where did you put these trails how did, you know, did you have a timing to when, like, hey, I'm never going to hunt the back of the farm until X time period? I'm curious about kind of that whole swath of, of things. Yeah, no, you nailed it. Um, the first access that we made with that brush hog day one was on the very southern line of the property. I'm, I'm figuring after listening to all your stuff and, and hunting cold fronts, that's what I wanted to do. So I'd go down you know, I'd, I'd my main day to hunt would be expectedly a north wind, something with a north to it. So access would be on the south side of the property, right on the fence line. Um, that way I can keep an eye on my neighbors too, and et cetera, and, and vice versa. But so I have one main access on the south line. Now, we recommend to a lot of our, our folks that we help out um, to have access around your whole property if you can. If you can take a, a skid steer and make a a road or a lane around your entire 40 acre square, that's going to behoove you in one way or another on certain winds. You know, as long as you can get around, you can hunt most days, most winds. Not saying you should, but you can. And so that's what the goal is. My place, the north border of the property butts up to my neighbor's field, which is overgrown, kind of autumn olive thicket. Um, the deer really like that. And so after some you know, a year of, of hunting from the south side, I could see that I'm not going to bulldoze a path right through the middle of that. There's no way. So I don't hunt on a lot of south winds on that property. So you get you got this this investment that I put all this money into and time, and <laughs> I have to hunt on a certain wind, which to most guys sounds pretty crazy, but to some guys sounds kind of normal. Um, I just, I could never get myself to cut through that, that north side for to hunt any south winds. And that burned me this year in 2022. We had a lot of south. We had a lot of east. Yeah. And and I I got burned on it. Now, I did get access from that one neighbor over there um, to the north. His dogs I've caught in trail cam running my deer around during November. His cows have been over. Um, but he lets me walk in from that side. So I... You know, it's one of those give and take things yeah. that it's like, 
man, how hard do you, do you push this guy to fix his fence and when he's letting you do that? So I do have a way to walk in. Unfortunately, that's been kind of grown up too. So now it's more, like you mentioned, I keep those north side spots for November 3rd, November 5th, November 1st, whatever. If I have a south wind that I need to get in there, I will burn burn some area by walking on it. That's all it takes, right? Walking through an area for that hunt, expecting to kill on that hunt. And if I don't, that sucks. I burned it for probably a few days and, and, and maybe longer than that. So my main, so to wrap it up, my main access is always on the south, trying to hunt the north and the west winds. But if there is something on the south and I have to get in there, I'll try to get access from a neighbor or I will slide in there, try to make sure I'm scent free. Boots are, are, are treated with zeolite, everything, and just hope that I get him killed before he knows I'm there. Hmm. So I guess tagging on to that whole general idea, how often can you get away hunting this 15 acre piece in a given season without, you know, negatively impacting it so much that you're hurting yourself? What, I mean, I'm sure you've been trying to test that out for yourself. You've been trying to figure that out over the years. I imagine what have you learned? Is this like a, you get three, four hunts a year or do you get 15, 20 hunts? What's, what's it been in your experience? Yeah. You know, I bet you could do between 10 and 15, uh, and, and, and I have, and be successful. I have three kids under nine years old and, and everything else. So I don't, I don't get out and hunt as much as I wish I could, but I hunted it with my four year old a few times this year and we were successful. I bet I hunted it seven, eight times. Um, it's an hour and 15 minutes away too. So that weighs in, but it's, uh, if you do it right and your access is bulletproof, you can hunt it 20 times, you know, you just really have to pay attention and, and it depends how, how your property sets up. Do you have the cover where they feel safe? Do you have the food? Is your wind not blowing in there ever? If you're, if you're diligent and detailed about it, you, the more you can hunt, in my opinion. Yeah. So what else is important to do? Like what other projects have you done on the property that are particularly important because of this small scale to, to allow you to keep hunting? Like you talked about some of the stuff you did to try to add cover back. I imagine that was part of it. What kind of things like that are you doing to, to make sure that this place can, can handle some hunting and still hold deer and still make deer feel safe, even though it's a, a small size of, of ground we're talking. Yeah. Number one would be, do not let your wind blow into that parcel. Zero. I know sometimes you have to give the wind to a big buck and I, and I've done that and, and I get that, but if you want to hunt it more than less, don't let your wind blow into the parcel really ever, if you can help it. I know nothing's perfect. Uh, don't walk into the parcel. I use a lot of cellular cameras. I know there's there's um, some morality conversations going on with those lately, and, and I get it. Uh, my point is I don't want to walk 50, 60, 75 yards out into my property and leave my scent. Yeah. That's, a, that's a no-no, no matter what. Um, and then I guess some, some tools of, of the trade that I love to use would be Mock scrapes, those have become popular the last five years or so. I've been using those religiously forever. And I I don't go make like 50 of them, but I'll make a dozen or so and and really 
put a dripper on it and a camera on it and let them tell me the story. In in those scrapes, is that is the the benefit of them is just to get the photos, or are you adding those scrapes because you think that's making more bucks want to hang out in season, checking those, and they're spending more time in daylight hitting those and, and that kind of thing? I think uh, the latter. Oh, well, both, really. Hi, buddy. I'm on the phone. I think um, the Max Graves will tell you a picture or, tell, or paint the picture for you when daylight is there. You know, daylight movement. So I use them for that and when I should hunt. But more importantly, the social aspect. Get these bucks feeling like, all right, well, here's my night tonight. I'm going to travel here and hit these four. I'm going to set and check this bedding area and, and repeat the next day or the day after, right? So I'm more intrigued and relying on the social aspect of it. And I think a lot of small property owners need to be doing that at every tree stand location. I've won at every stand location. What's your mock scrape kind of process? What all, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of different approaches to it. Some people just use what's out there. Some people will bring in a, a rope or a different stick from somewhere else or anything like that. What, what's your style? Sure. Yeah. You can use a vine or, or whatever else, right? There's a lot of different stuff out there. I like to take a white oak branch and cut it while it's green and hang that dangling down with some zip ties or paracord. Um, that is my licking branch, and it hangs down, you know, pretty far, and a lot of leaves on it. I'm, the, my thought is the more matter up there to catch scent and hold scent, um, the better off it'll be. And maybe it's overkill, but that's what I do. And they love, you know, walk down a field edge and don't, and, you know, and look for the oaks that have overhanging branches. They're all hit. So why, why go crazy and add something foreign? You know, let's use what what mother nature is already using. So that, that's what I do for my licking branch. I will hit the, the ground with a rake. I've used herbicide uh, to clear that ground. I make that ground extremely obvious. Like I'll do a five or six foot circle. And again, could be overkill, but to me, you're opening up that much more ground scent, the smell of dirt, et cetera. It's visual now at this point. And then I like to use, um, in combination with all that, you can just do that and let the deer take over. But I like to start out with some th- some synthetics to to start, and I don't go back and touch it ever. I don't go back and refill. I don't do anything. I just I set it and forget it, really, and then monitor from afar with cameras or from tree stands, etc. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood 
in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. All right, so... I feel like I'm accruing a set of small property rules here or guidelines on the, <laughs> when you're hunting it, make sure you have that or make sure from the get go, you establish this bomb access, like make sure you've got very smart access plans and then create the routes, you know, cut them, brush hog them, whatever. So you have a quiet, easy access route in from a safe wind perspective, never blow your wind into the core of your property, hunt it carefully and sparingly only when those things are right. Uh, establish mock scrapes throughout to you know have those social hot spots. Um, let's talk about cover because you mentioned that one of your big mistakes is removing too much cover. So you started with 15 acres, you took out three acres of it. So you're left with 12 acres of some kind of cover, three acres open. Now you've added an acre and a half or more back to that. And I think I've heard you talk about other things you've done to improve the cover that you did have. Can you talk about how you've created cover from nothing and how also you've improved the cover that you already had you know are you one of those guys who you know follows the i don't know like the jake elinger approach or jim browker with like hinge cutting like crazy and just like tons and tons of these hell holes or are you taking a more broad strokes tsi approach to everything like what's you know you've been able to talk to all these different people what have you chosen to do on your own you know 12, 13 acres of cover working there? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, with multiple answers, I'd say that the back eight acre woods, I called it, um, I had that, it was logged probably two years before I bought it. And I had it logged again, like three years later. And so in the loggers were all like, okay, your trees aren't quite big enough to cut yet. If you just wait, you'll have 
more value in these trees later on. That wasn't really my goal. My goal was to create better deer habitat now, not and how much money you're really going to make off of eight acres of of you know sparing sparing oaks. Yeah. Um, a lot more than I than I did probably, but so I had that cut as soon as I could get back in there and and learned and realized what I was missing. I had that cut, and that probably happened in 2019 or 2020. That's grown up to be nice and thick. So that was my TSI approach. That that was letting the sunlight come in. So full full eight acres, kind of uh, select logging. It sounds like across the board, making a, a an eight acre solid timber with better understory. Is that accurate? Yes. If you've ever seen a picture of an oak savanna, yep. or if somebody Google's oak savanna, it's like sparing oaks, excuse me, randomly, you know, or, or spaced out, if you will, planted pretty far apart so they can, they can do well. And then the rest of the ground gets hit with sunlight everywhere else. And nothing above five foot is, is really beneficial to a deer unless it's dropping acorns. Um, so I really was trying to put the 95% of what's left back into that five foot or under range. So that's, that's what we did there. We cut it hard. Um, I didn't make very much money, but I also didn't have to do it and put my safety at risk, um, time. Yeah. So, so everybody kind of won and the deer won too. Now that being a little bit of a lower land back there, a little bit of wetland, it it's taking longer to regenerate than I'd like, but it's regenerating and the deer are, are responding to it. Um, and then moving up to the the front half of the property, if you will, I've, I've done it all. I've hinge cut a bunch. I, I believe in hinge cutting. I've seen it. I've been on Jake's farm. I've been on my friend Alan's farm. I've been on these farms where these guys cut hard. And when I'm talking cut hard, they cut hard. Like tornado. Um, it looks like a tornado came through. Yeah, there's nothing left standing, really. Like there's nothing left. And unless you see that firsthand, you're not you don't understand how hard how hard you need to cut. Including me. I didn't know. But where I, I think hinge cutting is extremely beneficial, especially in the Midwest and the North. Um it's a tool in your tool belt. People think because I'm pro hinge cutting that and I made a bumper sticker one time, like a pro hinge cut bumper sticker is pretty funny. <laughs> Kind of as a joke, but it's just a tool in our tool belt. We don't recommend you go in and hinge cut your 40-acre woods. I don't do that. Um, it's more of – it's very situational. What I – after six years of doing this on the property, my recommendation is to get a forester in there first. Explain your goals. What are your goals? You want to grow timber? You want to grow deer? A little bit of both. A lot of our clients are a little bit of both. And how do you how do you address that? The more you go for timber, the less it's going to be beneficial for deer or or wildlife in general. So now I TSI first with a forester, select cut. I tend to go heavy if I can, and then come in with the hinge cutting architecture or just felling more more junk trees. Either way, get them on the ground, get the sunlight to the forest floor. That's rule number one. Um, I hinge cut for along my access where I park my truck. You can't walk from the woods to my truck in a certain area because of like the tornado zone I created, but that hides me, you know, it, it allows me to park and, and get in there. Um, I've hinge cut some bedding areas on the 15 and the deer are bedding in them. So it's, 
it's I'm kind of a all around guy at this point when it comes to which type of timber tool you want to use. And you also, I think I've heard you talk about doing some, some grass stuff, right? Have you done some switchgrass out there somewhere too? Oh yes. You mentioned that uh, as part of the question. Yes. I've planted some cave and rock switchgrass in three different spots. One of them was to hide my access walking in. I frost seeded that. That looks pretty good. I don't, I don't own a no-till drill or, or, um, I have an ATV and some tools and I'll have a tractor here finally soon, but I don't own the no-till. So I broadcast and frost seed and, uh, that was for access. That's working great. Now I'm hiding one of my deer, my tower blinds with some nice switch that's coming in. And, but the main thing that I did was out in the middle of the food plots where I talked about replacing that cover that I, that I brush hogged down. Mm-hmm. Now that I've practiced with an annual screen for two or three years and knowing I can divert the deer enough to come by my tree stand location at 23 yards, now I've replaced that annual screen with a perennial screen being switchgrass. So now what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking that, that task of having to get out there and plant every late May, early June and hoping my screen comes into something that's established. Um, that's kind of a cool project where I'm using it more for diverting than bedding on this 15. They kind of already bed where they bed. It's hard to force them to bed in new spots um, with with switchgrass if you're not dealing with like a big open field or, or something like that. Yeah. So what's the no-till approach that you took with that switch? How you know, Did you apply herbicide the fall before or something and then frost seed or, or how did you handle that competition? Yep. You nailed it. Um, I sacrificed the fall before by having this big dead Brown spot out in front of me. And was that uh, like a, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, but like when, when exactly did you spray? Was that like a roundup spray in, in pre, like August preseason or did you actually have to apply it like in hunting season? And did that freak you out? Uh, I did both. I did I did two sprays to make sure it was good and dead, and um, yeah, it always it always freaks me out. I'm I'm pretty anal about it, and it didn't it didn't hurt anything. I don't think if you say on your equipment and you're quick about it, but you know I just I don't want to be in there if, if I don't have to be during those times. So yeah, I sprayed with herbicide uh, twice, got it very nice and dead, and frost seeded it, and then. The next year, I hit it with Simazine early on, which is a uh, pre-emergent. helps keep anything else from coming up and establishing before your switch germinates and, and, and comes up. And then um, I mowed once it hits that second. So switchgrass will split when it's growing. Once it hits that second split or that second or third leaf, if you want to call it that, uh, or blade, then I'll mow it. And that tends to take out a lot of the weedy growth, um, broadleaf competition in there. Now, and now, I mean, it's, it's looking good. I'm, I'm <laughs> impressed. You just have to, with switchgrass, you just have to give it time. And I know everybody's impatient, at least I am, and you want things to be done now and, and yesterday. And well, with switchgrass, don't give up on it. Keep at it. And, you know, it'll, you'll, you'll reap the, the rewards there. Yeah. So year one, what kind of growth was there? Probably like three foot. Okay. 
and then by year two, was it five, six, something like that? Or yeah, it was five. Last year was year two. It was five. So I'm pretty excited to see what it'll be this year. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm hoping that what it'll do. I mean, they're still going to travel through it, but if I can give them a path of least resistance that goes around it, and a nice big mock scrape there, right at the tip of this funnel. And oh, by the way, my tree stands, you know, like I said, just within bow range of there. I'm hoping that'll pull them up. And it's worked in the past. So that's kind of my thought process there. Yeah, that sounds pretty nice. Uh, so speaking of screening cover then and that kind of thing, um, what are the other screening techniques or, you know, blocking techniques that you've that you've used outside just switch? Because you mentioned switch is like the long term. <clears throat> Excuse me. But you've you've used some annuals to get you by in the past. Otherwise, is that Egyptian wheat or sorghum? What, what are you doing? Yeah, great question. So uh, a lot of companies, you know, everybody can find their their favorite food plot company and and find a, a screening uh, mix. Usually, that's what I was using with a local one here in Michigan, um, and that was a mix of, of sorghum, Egyptian wheat, some other stuff in there. Uh, I should probably know more what was really in there, but I didn't really look. I planted it. It worked great. But the main stuff was sorghum and Egyptian wheat. And so what that would do, that'd be you know, 12, 13 foot high. Um, each year I'd plant it about six to eight foot wide. And and that would be more of a screen for the deer to kind of funnel them. Now, if I'm screening myself, at least on this property, you can use those same types of screens. My friend in Illinois, he plants the same stuff, and we walk behind it to hunt on his wide open um, terrain. But what I did on the 15, since I didn't really have a bunch of wide open fields, I had more more trees. I would end up hinge cutting along there and felling trees along there, letting that sunlight come in and just thicken it right the heck up with with briars and, um, you know, early successional growth. And that works as a great screen too. So there's kind of, I've kind of done both of those. I've also planted miscanthus. That's a touchy subject, depending on who you're talking about or talking to. Um, Gigantus miscanthus is a rhizome based plant that you can plant in the ground one time. And that grows after, you know, two, three years, six to 12, 15 foot tall, and kind of, um, so what I'm looking for here, it kind of propagates itself underground and it starts to spread and fill in a little bit. But that's a that's a great screen. It's a little more of an initial investment. And some folks are, are claiming that there's a invasive risk to it. Um, and it, that's, you know, it's above my pay grade, but I've used it and it's effective. It's just another way to do it. Uh, hybrid willows would be a fourth way. Hybrid or stream co-willows. You get those in cuttings or propagate yourself in the basement over the wintertime when you're bored, and you can plant those in some wet feet areas. Those can become a nice wall of cover. Um, do you like to rub on them and, and, and bust them off? And so it's, there are multiple ways you can do it, and I've done, I've done all those. Okay, so let me paint a picture of a scenario I'm faced with. I've used Egyptian wheat in the past, and it works awesome. And it has screened some plots that I have, one in particular that's within view of the road and adjacent to a big open field. And so screening was was really important. Um, the thing with that is that, as I understood it, it's important to plant it 
when it's warm enough. So I, I've always been told you got to wait till like late May, early June ish, somewhere in that ballpark to plant it. Otherwise, you know, you can't do it. And so I did that. But then starting, I don't know, some number of years ago, I started living and I've got a weird situation, but I go out west for the summer. And so I'm not home in late May, early June anymore to to plant this stuff. So now I'm trying to figure out, is there any other screen I can get out there that I could be planting at the end of April or, or, or otherwise to somehow get some kind of screening cover out there in these places, you know, without having to wait till the middle of the summer when I'm gone. And I've thought about miscanthus, um, but I don't know if I don't, I haven't looked further enough, far enough into it to know if that's something you can plant early in the year or not, or if I could plant it late in the summer, you know, and plan on it coming in the next spring and actually growing, um, is miscanthus would miscanthus work given that limitation I have with time or is switch, you know, planning switch really the only way I could get away with something that's always going to be there and doesn't require me planning in June. Um, or am I an idiot and I could be planting Egyptian wheat April 29th or 30th and, and get away with it. Do you know? That's a great question. I know you want to wait till the soil temperatures, um, up in that, you know, high 50, 60 degree mark for, for that annual Egyptian wheat type stuff or in that, that general, general time frame. Um, Miscanthus, I normally plant around that same time. I have to double check what the exact date is. I don't know why you couldn't plant it earlier or even, you know, in the fall or, or, or another time possibly. But how long are you going to be at this certain area for? Is this a long-term gig? Uh, you mean like when I'm gone for the summer or like the property that I'm hunting, like how long do I plan on continuing to hunt there? Uh, the latter. Uh, I hope for a long time. Well, then I'd probably go with um, a combination of like switchgrass and Norway spruce. So those spruce over time will grow up, you know, over more more time than we want to wait. Again, I know, but that will be a great screen along roads um, that – that you plant once. Yeah. Now hybrid willow. Um, there's a guy that I, I know in Southern Michigan, he has a really nice hybrid willow screen along his road. And I planted four or five of them behind my house to block my neighbor's house four or five years ago. They're 30 foot tall and you can, and you can copus them and cut them off at you know, the three foot mark and they'll just bush out and be a very nice screen. Now they lose their leaves in the fall, so there's that. Um, so if you do a combination of something that's more permanent, more perennial, um, that's going to solve your issue of, hey, I'm not around at this certain time of year. Uh, plus, those annual screens suck up so much nitrogen out of the soil every year that eventually, if you're not replacing that nitrogen, you're going to be, you know, you're going to have lower and lower returns on your on your planting. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. What's the process with those hybrid willows and how quickly do those establish? Um, I've never messed with willows at all. Is that literally like a stake that you're just sticking in the ground and then it just starts going? Is that what I'm thinking of or is something different? No, that's right. Um, I've learned, though, that if you're in a wetter area, which I'm not sure which spot you're talking about, but I know you have a this, certain wet area. Yeah, that this, we, this is that the we wet spot. This is the wet spot, yeah. Okay, well, then they're, they're going to do great there. Um, I, I've tubed them so the deer don't bite them off as they're trying to get established. And, yeah, they're the stakes or the cuttings. You can come to my house or I'll bring you some. Just cut them. You cut them in a 
you know, make sure the direction's right. You know where the top and the bottom are, but you take a big branch and cut it into five steaks and you can put them in a jar of water with some rooting hormone first, or you just stick them in the wet ground. Um, I've done both. And yeah, they, if you can get them potted first, anything that you can get potted from my experience, whether it's a, a bare root tree, pine tree versus a, a potted pine tree or a willow that I can get going in a pot first, you're going to have a better success rate, but it's more time up front. So there's really a bunch of different ways you can do it. But those things in the wet should be pretty prolific in a short amount of time. So how, you know, to, to visually provide some kind of visual barrier, you know, up to, let's say, five feet tall, give or take, is that a, a two-year thing maybe? Or what's, what's the timeline to get that kind of growth out of something like that? Yeah, those will, those will get five foot in, in one to two years. Yep. Nice. Interesting. Yep. We should definitely talk about that because that might be, you know, I don't even need, a, I don't need a very long row of that kind of thing. I just kind of need one, like, I don't know, even like 40 yards of it would, would give me the, the main area blocked that I want. Um, something okay. like that might be the trick. Um, so yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Especially if we can go add some, add some depth to it, right? Like one, if you think about one line of pine trees, yeah, it's a pretty good screen. You can kind of see through it here and there. If you have four rows, it's a totally different conversation. So same thing with, with this area. If we have some more freedom to go more in depth, more deeper yeah. versus length, that's going to behoove you even more. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool idea. I like that. Um, Okay, so screening, I think, is another key thing that could really help you on a small property like we're talking about because yep. it's going to provide that visual cover from neighbors or roads, but also of your access. So that's that's a big thing on our, our set of small property foundational ideas here. Um, we talked about your cover ideas, you know, doing the, the hinging, doing some serious cutting, bringing in a forester, figuring all that kind of stuff out. Um, we haven't really talked about food, but people love talking about food and it's hard not to get excited about it on in your experience on a small property, this 15 or, or maybe on the projects you've worked with, you know, consulting for people or on your 70 acre piece, you know, how much food, and I know that this is situation and location dependent, but if you had to give me a ballpark idea, how much food do you need to make a difference, you know, to actually to get started and be like, okay, this is, this is enough to actually change your property in a positive way. You know, do we need to, do we need an acre or two or is an eighth of an acre or half an acre still enough in your mind to, to, you know, start moving things in the right direction? I guess I'm, I'm thinking here from a starting point, what's our minimum viable product? So how about, how about the, the infamous answer of it depends? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that doesn't get anybody anywhere, but it's, it really does. Um, but if I had to generalize, do what you can do. Get started. I mean, if you can do an eighth of an acre, a quarter acre, um, and, and it's in the right location. You know, you, you mentioned with the screening, quick before we switch gears, keep people from driving down the road, looking into your farm. Make sure they cannot do that. That's very important. Your deer will not come out in the daylight, at least the ones that we're targeting. Uh, so for food, make again, it has to be in the right location. Can people see it from the road? Um, that's a huge no-no. So where do you have the room to do it? How much space 
you know, is your property allowing you to get started? Make sure you can access it. If you can't get to or you have to walk through your food plot to hunt the tree stand behind it, start over or don't plant a food plot there. Um, all, all things that, that we see and that, and that folks do because it's easier to do it where there might be a, a preferred opening. But in general, if you can get, again, and deer population comes into this too, deer density, but if you can get a quarter acre started or an eighth of an acre started, do it. Start there. Um, you know, the cliche thing is what, 10% of a property in food plots, I've, I've heard a lot of people say, that's great. Uh, I, I haven't reached that level yet um, too much. Maybe I'm close, but, you know, I don't have wide open fields to that allow me to, to do it in, in large numbers. So I would just urge you to, to try it and get started and make sure you're growing good quality stuff because then you're going to see the biggest bang for your buck and your time spent. Yeah. So what's your, what's your, uh, take then these days on what that high quality stuff is? I mean, how do you, there's right. You've heard a thousand different takes from people on what you should plant in your food plots. You've experienced experimented with a bunch of different things. We've, we've all heard the, ah, you got to buy this thing or you got to buy this thing, or you need to plant this, you need to plant that. There's, there's more opinions on food plots than there are stars in the sky. Um, <laughs> but but where have you landed as far as your philosophy on on how you choose what you want to plant? Um, can you can you give me some background into your thinking there, like how you got yeah. to this point, and then what you personally choose to 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 put out there in the world, both for people to to use themselves and to plant yourself? Yeah, and I yeah, thank you for allowing me to go into the backstory because I'll kind of explain how I got here. I was just going to ask you that. Um, it first started with getting a disc and working up the dirt. And spreading out, um, you know, buck on the bag style food plot mix from company A, B, or C. We all have them. Every local store has something. Um, that's where I started. And it worked good. Um, initially, the soil had not been planted before. It was a cattle pasture. Many years before that, there were some nutrients in the ground. Well, in Michigan, we have pretty sandy soil that drains out nutrients quickly um, gets depleted quickly, and uh, it's not that Iowa-rich black dirt. Uh, some parts we have it, but not for the majority, no. So I started that way, and again, time has always time and efficiency is always important to me. I always uh, try to try to be most efficient, spending most time with my family as I can while they're young and everything else. So I'm always trying to get stuff done with one fell swoop or, or you know, one one afternoon instead of four. So, you know, back with the disking, I'd have to go out there and have to spray two weeks ahead of time, go out there and spray again. Then you come back and disk it, plant it, and then you hope for rain. Uh, your soil is exposed. Um, I've had, I think, two or three drought years, at least two drought years in the past five seasons that I've been through. Well, I interviewed some people way back when on the podcast that you could plant food plots without working the ground up at all spray and pray throw and mow whatever you want to call it you'd spray with herbicide you'd plant small seeds you know brassicas clovers etc prior to a rain and you let that rain drive the seeds down into the soil and that dead thatch layer acts as you know you planting the seed or burying the seed once i saw that starting to work i stopped using a disc 
um, you know, for I could do all of it in one day. I could spray and broadcast my seed and drive home. I started doing that about four years ago, and you know, that's it's it's not quote unquote like perfect no till, but it's it's kind of my hillbilly no till, and it works great. <laughs> um, you have to up your seed rate a little bit and etc. But the the principles are there, right? The soil health principles are there of minimal ground disturbance. I, I haven't just my food plots in four years. Um, so you're helping build some of that organic matter and, and nutrients back into this, that very sandy soil I mentioned. And my time was cut in half. My trips were cut in half. Gas money cut in half, if not into thirds. Um, so that's, it was making sense to me, right? And the deer are still there. And so I did that for up until last year with the same sort of mixes that you can buy at the big box stores or local sporting goods stores. And then, I mean, and Mark, what helped me, what helped solidify me in this no-till disturbance, your podcast you did with Dr. Grant Woods, um, I think it was 279. You did a few of them with him. But yeah. when I heard that one, he made it so simple, stupid to me that I was like, what am I doing? And ever since then, I've listened to the podcast two or three times, um, and I, I follow all his stuff anyways, but. Ever since then, he just made it seem so just easy to do and the right thing to do. So that was kind of the, the first toe in the water towards diversity and, and no-till planting for me. And then I did kind of the, like I said, the hillbilly no-till for a while. Um, and then a good friend of mine, longtime listener of our podcast, he's been on a bunch of times. We call him the soil guy because he's... He's like Mark Drury is a mad scientist when it comes to deer hunting. He's like that about soil health. <laughs> um, and and I'm, I'm not. I, I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm not, I'm not near as, as uh, well-versed in it as, as Al is. So he's been planting some mixes, some very diverse mixes, you know, 10 seed mix, 10 seeds in a mix, 12 seeds, 16-way mixes the past five, six years. Just like Grant talks about and et cetera, to, to try to – get that diversity back into the food plot program, still no-till and, and just kind of, kind of simplified. He was making his own mixes, um, having a lot of luck in Southern Ohio. And uh, he's been a friend of mine for, for years now. Well, we, we went to the table and, um, my good buddy who I was working with food plots on our podcast for a long time, passed away from COVID. Um, so we were kind of at a loss and, and they didn't want to keep moving with that company, uh, in terms of a partnership with our podcast, et cetera. So it kind of came down to what are we going to do here? We, we love to plant plus. So we decided to, to come together and come up with some simple mixes for folks like me who just want to be quick, be effective, be efficient at a good cost and get it done. So that's where Vitalize Seed was born. And that's where I'm at now. These mixes are extremely diverse. Uh, you know, let's see. I think the spring mix is 13 different plant types, and the fall mix is 16 different plant types. So that just kind of took my no-till story, um, the spray and pray, into even the next level. Well, now you're doing this with clover, cereal, cereal grains, and brassicas all mixed together, um, and that's all been kind of my story for the past six years of where I started and where I'm at now, now being fully diverse, 
plant mixes, one in the spring, one in the fall, highly attractive and diverse to whitetails and all promoting soil health, nutrient cycling, less fertilizer, less herbicide. Yeah, it's awesome. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. So you you stop the tilling. So now you're not disturbing yep. the soil. You're not you know losing moisture from your soil. You're not encouraging further erosion of the soil. You're not destroying the biological life that's within that soil. Um, and instead, you're building organic material on top that is then you know becoming part of that soil. You've better fil- water filtration now. Um, you have new and, and encouraged additional growth of biology and, and all those little microbes within the soil that give that soil the power and the punch it needs to grow stuff. Um, 
So that all makes a lot of sense. You, you know, then move to this diverse planting. Now, can you describe for me a little bit more why diversity is a good thing for our food plots and for, for getting stuff there on the ground? Because there's, you know, a lot of talk about this. There's some people who say, man, you shouldn't plant blends because you're never going to do it at the right time for any one of those things, or you're not going to get any one of these plantings quite right. Um, but then there's this whole other suite of reasons why the blends are a good idea. What's your take on that? What 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 makes diversity a good thing when it comes to food plots, and and how does it help both from a hunting standpoint and from a you know soil health or food quality standpoint? Yeah, I mean, you really know your stuff. Um, <laughs> are you available for hire? Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I mean, you you just hit all the nails on the head, and I'm just going to agree with with what you're saying. Uh, honestly, I mean, for those who say you can't plant mixes together a, a diverse mix together i would i would disagree because i've done it and seen it i get their point where maybe okay you're not hitting the 110 percent most optimal uh, optimal time for this seed or this seed or this seed but like like my goals i'm trying to be efficient and simple and and as effective as i can so we've we've planted these highly diverse mixes and they work and they all the seeds grow and it's it's not quite a big of a, of a red alarm as, as some people say um the reason for doing that though why we like it so in the spring we call it the, the nitro boost mix to play on nitrogen right so the atmosphere is like almost 80 percent nitrogen in the air that we breathe our lungs are able to filter the o2 the oxygen out of that and and etc. But air is the majority percent nitrogen. Well, all the a lot of the plants in our spring mix, legumes can take that nitrogen from the air, push it through their 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 system into the roots, and have root exudation. We have a picture of a sun hemp plant that literally pulled it out of the ground, and you look, and there's little white balls on the roots that look just like the. 46 double zero nitrogen pellets you buy at tractor supply. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing it happen. And the other reason for the diversity is because, well, now you have sun hemp roots that might go down six inches. You have sunflower roots that go down further. You have certain clovers that are shallower. What we're doing is we're taking nutrients from the top two, three, four foot of the soil column and that plant is pulling them all together into one plant. And when you terminate that spring mix, all those nutrients are right there on top of the soil, not four foot down, not in the air above you, they're right there, ready to be used. That's why we do diversity in, this, in, in our mixes in the spring mix. So what the spring mix does is it cycles all the nutrients heavy on putting nitrogen into the ground, which is free fertilizer, um, from all these different levels, and when you terminate it for the fall planting, it's all readily available right there over time. I mean, like you, it doesn't break down overnight, and you can't use it exactly the next day, but our system is more of a year after year, it gets better and better. Um, now, in the fall, the carbon load play on carbon, that's what plants feed on, right? The sugars, the carbohydrates. Um, so the nitro boost, the nitrogen is feeding the fall plant that you planted and helping that grow for free. And then 
in turn, that big diversity of clovers, brassicas, cereal grains in the fall, 16-way mix, is doing the same thing. You're grabbing nutrients from three, four foot down. You're, um, you're keeping all of this at the right level in the soil, the top six inches. And when spring comes along again and your fall plant has been terminated, um, it's all dead carbon laying there. It's like the corn. They disc the corn back into the ground. It's high in carbon. They disc it back in. It feeds the soil. Um, that's what we're doing. We're doing no-till. All those car- all that fall carbon mix plays right into what the spring nitro mix wants to, wants to feed off of again. So it's a cycle. And it's how Mother Nature does it. And it's diverse in the way that it grabs nutrients and cycles them throughout the year. Now, what that means for animals, they understand nutrient density. They'll walk through a soybean field, I've heard, I've heard and, and seen some of where they'll pick certain leaves off certain plants. Um, maybe they'll walk by your food plot to eat the goldenrod that's on the side of your food plot. They can tell, you know, they're selective browsers. They can tell what has the best nutrients and what tastes the best. Um, you know, a, a, a metaphor we always hear about is the fruit plantings, you know, uh, oranges and apples and whatnot don't have the nutrients they used to, you know, that you might still have a bigger, larger orange, but it doesn't contain the same amount of nutrients it did 20 years ago. Um, that's nutrient density of the plant itself and it tastes different. So deer know that, and they're getting more nutrients out of each plant. They're getting their minerals out of the, out of these plants. You can't, can't put minerals out in Michigan anymore. So this is another way where we can help everything really um, and just find what works for you. Now, if some of those seeds and those diverse mixes don't come up right away, the temp, you know, maybe you get a cold front or something happens or a drought, you know, some will pop up right away. And then some of the other ones might fill in later. Like cl- some clovers don't establish as fast as say a sorghum or, um, or buckwheat, right? Buckwheat's an easy one to, to talk about. So, but what you have now in the column, you have food. Like, like in our fall, I think we have three different types of beans. We have eagle beans in there, um, regular soybeans. We added American Joint Vetch and Lab Lab for the boys down south. And like what, but what you have now is you have food from four foot in the air all the way down to the clovers and the vetch that's right in the bottom floor where a brassica or like a soybean field, you know, once those leaves fall off, you have some beans in there and, or corn, for instance, you have a cob of corn, but we're filling in that, that gap with all food. The sunlight is, is penetrating through all of that. And now we have a more mass of plant matter with every square foot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, how it'll, different things will start growing at different speeds and different times. It made me think just how diversity in addition to what you said also provides a really nice insurance policy for bad conditions or for, you know, any number of things that can go wrong with a food plot. If you plant all one thing, if you plant a monoculture, it's either boom or bust, right? You either did it perfect with the perfect soil conditions for that plant type and the perfect, you know, rain, you know, timing and the perfect, nitrogen content or, or whatever it is, pH level, yada, yada, yada. Um, so you might nail it or it might just be a complete failure on the side of diversity. You know, you can get away with things maybe not being just right for one of those because you've got 15 other things that, you know, have a chance of succeeding. So 
you're going to have something work. Maybe maybe 12 out of the 15 work great and you get three that aren't don't turn out as well in your conditions, but you've got something altogether there that's going to going to work and going to provide some level of benefit and attraction. And I, I love the idea of having something that is attractive throughout the entire season. Um, I've had, I've done food plots in the past where I was doing monocultures and it was like, all right, man, this food plot is going to be banging from opening day till the beginning of November, but then it's kind of slowing down and by late season that's toast. Like it's just not going to be attractive because of what I chose to place there. And then I'd have another food plot that would be like my late season spot. Um, but you know, that there's, you know, I guess there's reasons to do that maybe, but I have found better success now with these diverse blends that I've used the last, I don't know, three, four years because I get attraction from the very first day of the season to the very end of the season and beyond because, you know, something within that blend is attractive. So I've got, you know, three, four things that are attractive early, three, four things in there that are attractive mid season, three, four different things that are attractive at the end. And so deer now form this pattern and this behavior where they just know, Hey, year round, I know there's something good there. So I'm going to have this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth thing that doesn't ever have to change. And that's very beneficial, obviously, then from a hunting standpoint. So you've got, you know, the nutritional component and then the hunting patterning component, um, not to mention the soil health stuff, which, like you said, great podcast we did with Grant. Um, I've read a lot on okay. it. I, I tested some of those things first on the back 40, and now I've been doing it more and more on my other local pieces. And it's um, it makes a lot of sense to basically work with Mother Nature to enjoy the the benefits of natural fertilizer and you know natural water conservation, all this kind of stuff, rather than pumping in chemical synthesized substitutes that cost a lot of money, especially these days. Man, I, I bought a little bit of fertilizer last year, and that stuff is expensive now. I mean, like, oh, no kidding, crazy how much it rose in cost. So, you know, going this route, you know, regardless of what blend you use, um, I think diverse and trying to apply these different no-till ideas just is a it's a it's better for the earth it's better for the soil it's better for the deer it's better for your wallet i it's hard to argue with it from everything i've been seeing and learning um that i do have a question for you rather than me ranting about why i like it um, no no you just you just wrap that up very nicely and, and hit the spots that i missed um if there's one thing i can add quick mark yeah. there you know the going back to the, the six soil health principles, you know, you want to keep a living root in the ground at all times for, for the microbes in the soil. If you're, if your beans are done, there's nothing going on in that soil till you're planting next year. Um, and like deer know that your soil knows that. So, you know, the, the fact that it's not a monoculture, um, drought resistant, you get a warm day in December, that rye is going to start popping again. Or even January in certain, you know, Southern Ohio, that that rye and that wheat in the mix and whatever mix you use is going to start popping again. It's made to do that. Um, so yeah, and I mean, pretty much whatever mix you use or mix your own, diversity is extremely helpful. We've just we've gone through it with the seed mills where you walk in there and and they look at you like you're crazy. You want to do what? You want to buy and mix all this? No, we don't have that. So then you got to buy 50 pounds of rye, 25 pounds, of, and then you're starting to have all this extra seed lying around. We just pretty much tried to button all that up and simplify it. Yeah. Um, so 
the spring and fall plantings or the spring and late summer plantings, how would you recommend someone go about doing that as far as like the best food or best, you know, there's a number of different ways to do this kind of thing, right? You could use a drill, you can do the hillbilly approach you took, and then there's different ways to terminate. Um, and, and I guess I'm, basically what I'm looking for here is could you walk me through your recommended process for how you go about planting your spring planting and then if you should terminate how you terminate and then how you go about it in the fall planting, how you recommend doing that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I guess I'll let you run with that. Yeah. Great question. There's, there's a multitude of ways you can do this depending on what equipment you have. Um, I would, I would urge people to start with a, a clean slate, you know, don't, don't go out in your, in your pasture and just start broadcasting onto a thatched layer of grass. You're not going to win. Um, you know, so I, I would recommend, or I start with an herbicide treatment and, or even tillage for, for day one. Now this is just to get a clean slate. Uh, I have no problem with that. We're just trying to minimize soil disturbance over time and herbicide use over time. Not saying we never use them, but if we can decrease that, the more the merrier. So a clean slate in the spring or the fall is how I like to start. Um, so what then I would do, there's multiple ways you can plant. If you have a no-till drill, God bless you. I'm jealous. That's awesome. I hope to have one someday. Um, that's going to be your probably number one way to get the best seed to soil contact. And we have like an average depth that we'll use for, for the mixes. So you're getting a little bit of everything. That's one way to do it. Uh, a friend of mine uses a two row corn planter, you know, the, the kind that you run through disc to ground and the old John Deere, Alice Chambers, you can use those. Um, it might not be the most effective way, but I've seen it done and it does work. How I normally do it would be just a broadcast method. So I would spray the ground and or till it or disc it, get myself a fresh, clean start at the very beginning of my system I'm about to commit for the next five years. Um, and I broadcast and I, what I time up is the seed this? rate. Sorry, what time of year is this, Jared, that you would start this spring planting? Great question, Mark. We like to wait till the soil temps between 55 and 60. I'll, I'm a little bit more on the 57, 58 to 60 degree range. So depending on what that is, it could be May up up here in our neck of the woods, late May, early June. But that's where we want it to, to be. I mean, there's, there's, you know, soybeans, sunflowers, eagle beans, that sort of thing in these mixes. So we want to make sure that you're not, you're not putting it in the ground at the wrong time. So right about that 60 degree temp mark. Okay. And then I broadcast, I add about 25% extra seed per acre than if I were to drill it. Um, you could even go 50%. Um, if, if you have a, a good price seed and, and you're not paying out the wazoo for it and you can afford to do a little more, it's not going to hurt you. Uh, I'd like tend to do 25 to 50%, usually more on that 25 mark. So what I do is I'll broadcast that and I will call to pack it in. Now, if you're on year two or three of this system, you're going to have rye, et cetera, popping up from your fall plot from the season before. You are going to have that, you know, shoots of, of growth in May from the fall plot. You're not going to have a clean slate. So what you do then is you broadcast 
or drill into that live standing vegetation and you terminate that vegetation over top of the seeds you just spread. Now, there are multiple ways to terminate. You can use a brush hog. You can use herbicide. You can use a roller crimper. You can use a lawnmower. Um, one that's not talked about enough is a flail mower. It's an attachment for a tractor that that's meant for more heavier duty brush than a brush hog. But if you notice behind a brush hog, sometimes you get like a windrow where the thatch kind of all piles up in the middle or off to one side. Yeah. The flail mower will cut it a lot more even, giving you more even coverage over the seeds you just threw down. So that's that's a, a tip there that a lot of people don't really really talk about. So plant terminate over top. Now, any any more questions on the spring mix before we shift gears? I do. One last question. Yep. Go ahead. Um, just in case somebody is is well, two things I guess. One, the big benefit to doing the spring planting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but by doing the spring planting, you are essentially this is a way to fertilize and prepare for your fall hunting plots. But you're doing it in a way that you know isn't pumping synthetic fertilizers into the ground. It's not costing you as much from that perspective, and you're building the soil content. And as a bonus, you are now adding high quality food for all sorts of wildlife for an additional three months of the year um, to then build into your fall hunting plot. Is, is Am I right on like a cliff notes version of the benefits of doing the spring planting? It, is that right? Yep. And I would go as far as say as you would, or you're also suppressing weeds Yeah, at okay. that time as well for all summer long, which again relates to lower herbicide use. Okay, cool. So then second question would be, um, if if we're trying to build a spring mix ourselves, if we're just trying to yep. DIY it, what are the like just foundational like types of you know do give me a like a high level, broad strokes idea of what kind of stuff I should try to include if I'm DIYing this myself? Yeah, so what's what can be unique is trying to get the carbon to nitrogen ratios uh, perfect between the spring and fall planting. That's what. That's what we tend to do. It's kind of our niche. Um, but if you're going in there, you know, a lot of guys will plant rye and buckwheat, um, sunflowers, some clovers, legumes, right? Any legume will put nitrogen into the ground. Beans um, will help prepare for the fall planting. There's a bunch of different soil I, soil building mixes, you could call them, out there. Um, so just, just understand that spring food plots can be harder and more challenging than fall food plots based on what you're dealing with the summer. You may or may not get rain. Yeah. Um, you might have some more weeds in there, warm season type plants because you're not planting in, in the fall. And uh, they do look a little messier sometimes. But just think of it this way. All that is going to go back into the soil to feed your next round. So yeah. I think the upside outweighs the downside. Yep. Okay. I follow you there. So now we have this messy summer food plot, but it's great. It's providing all sorts of cool stuff. There's some weeds in there, but that's fine because weeds in many ways are good for all sorts of other yeah. critters and pollinators and fun stuff like that. Now we edge into late summer and we're getting ready to plant our fall planting, which is the, you know, our hunting plots. And can you walk me through how you are terminating your spring plot when you're doing that and and what you're thinking about when we plant this next version or this next round. Right. 
definitely. So if you have a drill, you can you can drill right through the spring mix. They call it planting green. You can fire that thing up with your tractor and drive right over it and plant in between it. And you're going to kill some of the some of the spring mix by running it over. Some of it's going to mature and, and die out with frost, etc. And you don't use any sort of herbicide. Um, you're just literally keeping living roots in the soil all the time. It's pretty cool. Uh, again, it looks a little messier, but you know, it depends what your goals are. What I do with the equipment I have, which is pretty average, um, for every, you know, a lot of people that I, I run or talk to, we, you know, I'll, I'll go in there normally in August. Normally I'm in August. I'm playing the weather. I'm looking for that rain. I want to make sure that that I have a good rain coming. So sometime in August, because I want to give my brassicas some time to grow that are in the mix. And if you're only cereal grains, you can wait a little bit longer, even even September. So, but since it's, we're talking diverse mix here, I try to hit the middle of all of it. I'll go in there. I will. So now I have a four or five foot standing spring food plot. You know, tall as me. I'm, I guess I'm taller than four or five foot. But you know, right in that area. But I'm going to be with my age. Yeah, I'm four foot two and be driving through with my ATV. And I'm going to be I have a, a like a salt spreader for for ice on the front. And I just fill that thing up and I broadcast through the standing mix. And now all that seed is getting, you know, falling down in between all these plants down to the ground and or close. Then I come through and I terminate it. I have an ATV. Cultipacker works pretty good. Um, it has a roller crimper attachment on it. That works pretty good. Herbicide, I've used herbicide because that works great. And really, if I'm using herbicide and I'm doing this system, I'm using it twice a year max. And really, that's a lot better than than what I've done in the past. And, and I'm I'm trying to go to once a year soon. Maybe no, you know, no use of that a year. But long story long, spread your seed, terminate with either crimper and roll that down and terminate those plants on top of your seeds you can spray your combination of both or again back to the mower you can grab a mower and that's where that throw and mow came from years ago you're mowing and all this dead plant matter what we call thatch or duff is covering up your seeds and acting as if you planted them under the dirt so then you need that rain so that's pretty much how i would do that it's i mean it's Pretty standard. You're just instead of covering your seeds with dirt, you're covering it with dead plant matter. If that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's really key to make sure you broadcast first before knocking down any of that stuff, right? Because if you knock down your your spring planting first, it then your seed never makes it beneath it, right? So that timing is is pretty key. Your order of operations can really mess things up, right? It can with a diverse mix like that where we we have peas and and oats and big big seeds in there that's why i do it that way i've done it the other way though too with if you're just planting like brassicas and clovers um i've sprayed first let it die for two weeks and then just wait for that rain and then run out there and and the smaller seed with a good rain can get down there as well but now you're starting to depend on how much thatch layer do i have how much soil is exposed it can get a little bit tricky yeah. So I, yeah, I do it like you said. I do it prior, and then I terminate over top. Okay. Um. And all right. So we've got 
We've got the process. It's such a cool, simple, cheap way to do it. Like you don't need any big equipment to do it like this. You really could do it with, you almost don't even need a, you could do this with a backpack sprayer or a, you know, over your shoulder broadcaster. And that's a basically it. I mean, you don't need to have a tractor. You yep. don't need to have an ATV and ATV helps a lot with certain parts of this, but you don't need it. Um, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty darn cool. What if, again, I know I, I used your, um, your carbon load, I think you call it or whatever the heck it's called your yep. fall blend last year. I had some issues with water flooding, but, uh, the stuff that did come up came up really good. Um, and I ended up having a mature buck in their bunch, which, uh, it's a story I actually haven't told in the podcast yet, but I almost killed a mature buck with my four-year-old this year twice. Um, and, uh, it, it was revolving around this spot that you and I, you know, worked on planning last year, which is a story for another day. I'm not going to tell the story of this particular hunt until I kill this deer, which hopefully will happen someday. Um, but, uh, but what if, if someone's trying to, you know, do something like this themselves, or if they are, you know, if they already have some stuff and they're wondering, Hey, will this work for a summer planting no-till like this? If I want to do this year round cycle, what are the key elements of this kind of fall blend in your in your mind? Key elements being like seed types, yeah. or what's it bringing to the table in general? I guess both. So, so what okay. what general categories of seed would you want in a fall mix? And you can speak sure. to what you guys use yourselves or otherwise, and then you know, and why? Oh, first of all, if you would have killed a mature buck with a four year old in a vitalized food plot, I'd be high fiving you all the way down to. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow! That'd be a, I can't wait to hear that story. Um, hopefully, the, it, the, hopefully but, it happens this fall. Now I tell you what, I brought my four year old out like six times, and we killed a doe, and we killed three does together. But it, it wasn't for a lack of a challenge. So to get a mature buck in bow range, or holy cow! Um, well done. But to answer, to answer <laughs> this was with question, a gun. It was with a gun. Oh, was okay. Well, still, yeah, I. You understand the four-year-old yeah. and the deer blind. Still was Again. was a miracle to be close to pulling it off. Still, still a miracle. Exactly, exactly. Um, so it, for the for the fall load, you know we we like to the, the main goal of this was to just cycle nutrients, like Grant talks about, with whatever seed blend you go to, and get off of the fertilizer and the herbicide. What's actually <laughs> what I've learned from the process is this is super attractive to whitetail more so than I would have ever thought. I'll be the first to admit it. Um, but now that I you know know more about it and know what's in it, I understand. So in the fall mix, we do a 16 way. We have, I hope I get this right here. We have like four or five clovers. We have four or five grains, like cereal grains, and we have four or five brassicas. Um, and we have, that's, that's in general, it's pretty much what it is. There's different turnips and brassicas. There's, you know, buckwheat, oats, wheat, uh, rye, triticale. And then, you know, you have your different types of Dixie Crimson Clover, medium red clover, frosty bursim, you know, some good name brand stuff. Um, but to, in general, it's a mix of clover, brassicas, and um, grains for the most part. And what that does, you mentioned it earlier with, kind of insurance policy. We had a drought year this past year. And finally, when we started getting that rain in October, boom, 
here it comes. And the deer noticed that. And I was just blown away by how they can, again, selective browsers tell what is diverse, where to go, which food plot to walk across to get to which other one. It's really very cool. So those are kind of the principles there is just you have something for each part of the season. You have brassicas for late. You have grains for early and, and clover for browse tolerance. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your question fully or not. Yeah, no, you, you covered it. And then okay. do any of those clovers, I, I got to believe some of those clovers will be greening up again in the spring before my spring planting of the next round. So I'm getting year-round coverage of some kind of food out there. Is that right? Yeah, living roots in the soil all year long is, is what we're trying to do here. You know, up here, you know, it's tough in February, right? But like down south, it's a different story. Those guys have it going on um, with the longer planting seasons all the time. So that's the idea. And in the spring, that rye is going to bolt, that wheat's going to bolt up, your clover is going to start popping up again, and you're going to have the first green food source out of anybody around. That's kind of what we try to do with everything with our properties is, is be the outlier, be the exception. Um, you know, in terms of your terminology, be the icing on the cake. You don't need to be the 40 acre cornfield that holds all the deer, but you can get them to swing in and spend some time there while you're in the tree stand. That's a goal. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, we are running out of time. So there's like a whole bunch of other things I was thinking I want to talk about, like a whole other property you have that you've been working on that we didn't even, oh, get, shoot, to cover. We didn't even get there. No, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I guess that means we have to do this again. Um, man, I, I appreciate talking through all this stuff. It's really fun to get to talk through these ideas um, and, and talk to someone who's proving them on, you know, not a big, huge giant farm, but doing it on 15, doing it on 70 you know, doing it like anybody else would doing it without tractors and no tills. I mean, you're doing it very simple, very basic budget kind of stuff. So it just, I think gives myself hope. And I think a lot of people that this is something that's available to just about anyone. And, uh, and I appreciate that. So, uh, before we wrap it up though, really quick, Jerry, can you give us the quick scoop on where we can, you know, learn more about your content, consume your content, learn more about the seeds, all that stuff. Where, where can we get it? If you want to hear more about this Habitat stuff, we talk about it all year long. Habitat Podcast. Again, I'm very simple. Habitat Podcast. Find that on all of the iTunes and Spotify's of the world. Habitatpodcast.com. And, uh, you know, we've had you on there a couple of times. It's just, it's just, it's, it's what we nerd out on all the time. We love it. And we talk about making your deer hunting property better uh, with the use of habitat improvement. Um, as far as the food plot stuff, that is called Vitalize Seed. Um, the idea behind Vitalize is to put strength and energy back into something. That's what we're doing with our, our soil and our wildlife. So VitalizeSeed.com. If you have any questions, we, we pride ourselves on service. So call us up, email us. We'll take your call. We'll take your email. Take your soil test. We'll help you out. Feel free to reach out. You will hear back from us at VitalizeSeed.com. And Mark, just thank you again, man. Had a great time chatting with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's good to uh, catch up again, and uh, hopefully we can talk more again soon while uh, while standing over some dirt, or maybe, hopefully not dirt, hopefully it's living roots and something growing, and we're talking about the next round and uh, continuing continuing this food plot process. So thanks, buddy. You bet. I'll see you this spring. All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you. Hope you found this one interesting and inspiring. 
Uh, I hope maybe you were going to go grab a chainsaw or a shovel or your UTV or something and head outside and get to some of these projects. You know, spring and summer is going to be here before we know it. So let's get out there and get started. And with that said, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.